Welcome in to another edition of Region Roundup. I'm James Boyd here with Mike Clark on this wonderful Monday afternoon. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, James. Um, I'm kind of amazed we are actually doing it on Monday, uh, which is <laughs> a little bit of an upset. Uh, in recent weeks, uh, you've been kind of bogged down with a bunch of other uh Functions, including getting ready for state football last week and all sorts of COVID updates and wrapping up fall sports and everything else. So um, it is good that you have a little bit more time this week and uh, we can get right to it. And uh, first thing, I know there was a special bonus edition of Region Roundup last weekend, um, but we're going to cover, I guess, a little bit more in depth on uh, Hobart's first trip to state in 26 years, um, kind of, uh, you know, awakening the echoes of that great program, and you know, we talked about it a little bit before, um, you know, it's like I told you, I think, was it last week? I can't remember the weeks kind of blend together, but, you know, when I came to the region in 1988, Hobart was the gold standard for high school football around here under Coach Don Howell, uh, who succeeded Coach Russ Deal, and the two of them really put Hobart on the state football map. Um, you know, there were some lean years after Coach Howell retired, but uh, Craig Osika, who played for Coach Howell, has kind of got the program back up on top again, and uh, getting to Indy is... Uh, such a um, historic uh, milestone, obviously, for that program that was used to making that trip down I-65 pretty frequently. It hasn't, again, hasn't been down there for a generation, basically. But got down there, uh, kind of a tough afternoon. But uh, I think I'm not sure if it was. I think it was in your story, or it might have been. A, one of the other stories we had, but that vote, I thought, um, had maybe one of the greatest quotes of the year, uh, where he said he didn't want to go out like a chump, he wanted yeah. to go out <laughs> like a man, um, you know, and just, you know, they scored late in the game, and, uh, you know, that's kind of bricky football, basically, is to play until the, you know, the horn sounds, and, uh, you know, even though, again, the, the, the result wasn't what they wanted, but uh, getting back there and playing there uh, kind of established, a, you know, something for this program. And uh, you were there and you got some more insights. Yeah, it was definitely a unique situation just because the uh, pandemic um, kind of jeopardized the season. And for a lot of people, they weren't able to really navigate it due to the pandemic. You know, you know, you had teams that were pulling out of the tournament and teams that were postponing or canceling every week, it seemed like, and not even seemed like, that's just what it was. Um, so to get back there, you know, historically, from a, uh, from a historical perspective, was really cool. Um, first time since 1996, it had been 24 years, um, and then they were trying to win their first one since 1993, which obviously didn't happen. But um, there was the historical angle, and also the, oh my gosh, we made it here during a pandemic angle. Um, which I, I captured a little bit in my game story. I, fo I focused more on 
you know, just the historical family ties that a lot of those players have um, with fathers playing there. And, 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 you know, Raleigh Johnson is his uh, granddad is Jim Johnson Sr., who's the star pole vaulter and a legend in Hobart. And um, just about everyone on that team, you know, has an uncle, aunt, no, not uncle, <laughs> um, you know, uncle or father or, or, you know, a cousin or a brother that played football for the Brickies or played um you know a sport for the brickies and it could have been around their aunt but it's just that big family atmosphere and it was awesome to see you know when i got down there i got down there probably about an hour and a half before my game started and uh as i was walking in they weren't letting fans in for uh, the different games until the fans before cleared out so the line was pretty long for hobart fans um they were definitely um very faithful and they stayed to the very end even though the score was 47 49 to 7 um, after they scored that one touchdown, they just erupted like they had won the game, which was kind of nuts. Uh, it was really surreal to see. And I know people kind of preach about that. Oh, we have like this great community, this great family community. But I believe Hobart is not, you know, being cliche when they say that because, again, you're down 42 points. Uh, and actually at that point, they were down 42 to 7. Um, and then on the ensuing kickoff, uh, Ron Colley ran all the way back for, you know, a touchdown. So it ended up being 49 to 7. But, I mean, they were still cheering. Like, when they got their runner-up trophy, uh, Mike, you know, they raised it up and they were cheering like they had won the state final. Like, it was so weird to me. I was like, wow, like, these are some really diehard fans. Any more diehard than me and the Chicago Bulls. That's in the story. Um, or the Bears, for that matter. But um, it was a good experience, man. I, I thought that our coverage overall was great. Um, obviously, we had a lot of help on the um, – just – all hands on deck for that game and you know on the copy desk as well getting all that stuff out to you all um i really didn't sleep last week um i slept yesterday really slept yesterday for the first time in probably about three weeks um that felt good so um you know obviously we got more stuff on the way but i mean it was it was a really cool experience just you know going down memory lane learning about don howell and learning more about don howell and you know the the era of bricky football that's kind of just been told in like this this uh mystic and mysterious and this mythic type of uh conversation to kind of see that get reinvigorated this time around was really cool um we even had two people on the bricky's uh team celebrate their birthdays uh play caller dave temple and junior defensive lineman alex pickett they both celebrated their birthdays um with the state finals appearance which was really cool um, I guess being Facebook friends with Alex Pickett helped me find that story, so that was nice. Um, but yeah, man, it was it was a good experience. I stayed there probably longer than I needed to, but I figured, hey, you know what? Who knows when you'll be back here, James? Just enjoy it. Don't rush your game story because you're not on deadline. I finish it pretty early and then don't, you know, rush through the experience of being there. So I watched the 6 day game as well, um, which also had some some region ties. Um, so it was a, it was a really good game, um, really good atmosphere. Um, obviously not the outcome they wanted, but I mean, the region made it to state during the pandemic, so I think that will be remembered more than the outcome of the game. For sure, and uh, again, uh, we talked about it throughout the course of the season, you know, we didn't know in August whether we were going to have a season or what kind of a season it was going to be, but um, Homer did miss one game, they missed the first Lowell game, uh, which would have probably decided the NCC title. Uh, they did get a chance to play a little later in the playoffs, but uh, you know, Hobart was probably less affected than most schools by it. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about 
ongoing COVID effects because that's pretty much what the pod has been for the last eight <laughs> months here. Yeah. Um, but before we get to that, um, you know, another uh, story that you've kind of been uh, keeping an eye on over the last uh, couple of years here, um, Darius Garland, who is the son of Winston Garland, who um, was a legend when I was here, you know, when I came here again back in the 80s and 90s, um, uh, Gary Native uh, is playing for the Cavs now, Darius I'm talking about, um, and even though he didn't go to high school in the region, um, he still has very close ties to the region and uh, keeps the region in his thoughts, and uh, you uh, kind of caught up with him and had a story about that last week too. Yeah, so his brother uh, Desmond Nunnery hit me up um, the week of semi-state. Uh, I was on my way to cover the uh, Valpo Zionsville semi-state game at Zionsville, and his brother's like, "Hey, uh, Darius is available for an interview. He remembered me from a story I did previously around the holidays with Darius, and he's like, "Hey, I like the way you wrote that story. We all liked it. Um, do you want to talk to him again?" And I'm like, driving, and I'm like, "Sure." So I, uh, you know, did an interview on the fly with him um, in my car on my way to Zionsville. His, his brother did give me a, a heads up. Um, you know, when he'd be calling all of that, so I was able to think of some questions. And basically, it was uh, detailing that, first and foremost, he paid for six families' uh, groceries for Thanksgiving. And there were two in Gary, two in Cleveland where he plays, and two in Nashville where he played college basketball, and where he spent most of his high school days. Um, so, again, six families. And I told him, I was like, hey, how'd you, how are you going to pick these six families? He's like, well, we're just going to have my, uh, we're just going to have him and his brother, we're going to pick two families in Cleveland. They were just gonna walk into a store and pay for two um, random people who were, who were in the store, and the same thing was gonna happen in Gary with his aunts, and then in Nashville with his parents. So that was a really cool thing for him to do. Um, and then, other than that, we went down just kind of recapping what his experiences were with the pandemic when the season stopped, his rookie year, things he wanted to improve on, um, his admiration for Derrick Rose. He told me he was a bit starstruck when he played against him for the first time. That was like his uh, I'm in the NBA moment. That was really cool. I asked him about Eugene German from 21st Century, who uh, starred at Northern Illinois trying to get into the NBA. He said he grew up playing against Eugene German and has a lot of respect for him. Thinks he can be an NBA player. And uh, it was just a fun conversation. And and it was kind of funny because, you know, I'm only 24 and Darius is 20. He doesn't even turn 21 until next month. Uh, Or actually, uh, uh, January. Technically, that's you know, a day, tomorrow's December, but yeah, it was kind of funny to talk to a guy who's giving back and doing things, and he can't even have a legal drink, so uh, it was, uh, it was, it was cool, it was fun, I'm hoping to continue to keep that pipeline going between me and, um, you know, professional athletes from the region, as well as our newspaper just covering anything they do back home, because all that stuff always gets well read, and it's fun to, again, check in, not only for the Thanksgiving stuff, but also, you know, we don't get to talk to them as frequently as we do with these, you know, high school coaches and high school players. So whenever you got a chance to talk to an NBA player, NFL player, you know, you got to say yes and you got to just get them when you can. So that was a fun experience. And it also uh, led to a pretty uh, ridiculous uh, voicemail I got, Mike. I got a voicemail from a guy who was telling me that uh, I was an idiot for interviewing um, Darius Garland, who is a cheapskate because he only paid for six families and not more. And uh, people make a hundred times less than him, but give a hundred times more. Um, that was 
the first of two crazy emails I got. And I got another email from a guy who was telling me that my game story about Hover was terrible because I didn't mention the score. And the score is literally in the first sentence. The first sentence. Um, so I, I don't know what those, the problem was for these guys or these men who were kind of uh, pretty nasty in my voicemail, but I could care less. Um, I feel like the majority of the region enjoyed those stories. And obviously, the people who were involved with them enjoyed them. That's the goal. So, um, overall, though, it was fun to check in with Darius and also to subsequently get a email or a voicemail, rather, that was um, interesting, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so uh, we got a little bit of a, that was a little bit of a preview of coming attractions. Our last uh, our last item on our agenda today will uh, oh, yes. touch on a, another big news story that of the week that uh, also generated some interesting responses so stick around for the rest of the pod um before we get to that though um we are wrapping up uh fall sports and uh that includes knocking out our players of the year for girls soccer boys soccer and girls volleyball and uh Again, amidst all the other stuff going on, and oh boy, we also got boys basketball starting too. So mm-hmm. this is kind of the time of the year when everything is kind of swirling around us. But uh, anyway, yeah, if you want to kind of run down our players of the year, which uh, um, we uh, unveiled in uh, the paper last week, then. yeah. So for volleyball, we had Haley Melby. She's a junior outside hitter for Munster. Um, committed to Iowa. She had a phenomenal season, led the uh, Munster Mustangs to a runner-up finish at States in the biggest class, Class 4A. Um, the coach of the year was Munster's Brett Bowden. Um, obviously, uh, making a, a run to State is a really good way to get your name out there for a coach of the year. He was selected by Paul Orne. So you can check out both stories on our website. Um, for boys soccer, um, I don't think there was any surprises on that side at all. Um, again, they both, uh, both the coach and the player, uh, Zach Bowser from Chesterton, um, coach, um, Lucas Sabeja from Chesterton, they were the coach and player of the year on the boys' side, um, well-deserving, won their second state title in the last three years, um, won it in dominating fashion, 7-1 over Castle, I was there, I witnessed it, my only boys' soccer game of the year, and it was the easiest story I've probably written all year for a game story, because it was so... Lopsided, honestly. Um, it, was, it, was, it was nuts to think of. Um, both of them had a phenomenal year. And then for the girls, we had uh, um, Addie Joyner from Chesterton for the trifecta. Um, she's a phenomenal player, but I focused my story more on what she does in the community as a youth soccer coach for Next Gen Soccer. Um, she's really selfless in that way. Great interview, great person. And I kind of wanted to write more about who she is rather than you know, how many goals she scored. She ended her career with 113 goals, all-time record at Chesterton, arguably their best player in, in program history. Um, led them to a sectional championship that made it to the regional championship before losing. It was a phenomenal year for Chesterton in general for fall sports with Paul Oren wrote a really great story about. They won like 11 postseason trophies in 21 days, something crazy like that. So uh, that was a fun thing to kind of wrap up. And it was hanging over my head for a while. So it's always good to kind of close the door on you know, fall sports and get ready for, you know, winter sports. Obviously, there's football all area to come up and player of the year and coach of the year, which I'm working on as we speak. But um, it was good to wrap up, you know, volleyball, boys soccer, and girls soccer. 
And we should mention the girls' soccer coach of the year also, probably. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm glad you reminded me. It was Jeff Clapman for Andran. Um, they, too, made it to a regional championship game. Um, ended up losing, but they won their uh, seventh sectional championship first since they went to state in 2016. And the reason I selected him was because, unlike Chesterton and Valpo, and even some of the small schools like Boone Grove and Covenant Christian, Andran doesn't really have, like, that star player. They have really good players, but they didn't have any All-State players, um, you know, and they didn't have, like, this, 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 you know, this big, great, grand season. They kind of made things happen in the postseason um, with just having some really good team cohesiveness. So I decided that, you know, with the way he coached that team, um, they probably exceeded expectations. And, um, you know, like I said, won a section championship. Avenged their loss last year in the section championship against Boone Grove. Got back this year and knocked them off. So uh, Jeff Clapman was my coach of the year for girls soccer. I believe it was well-deserved. Um, and he's kind of well-respected around the region, even though he's a Munster grad, 1985. Um, he's 59-3 uh, and through and through. He enjoys representing that program. And um, he just enjoyed that, you know, his team didn't miss any games because of COVID-19. So, again, it was a crazy year during fall sports. and not miss any games to navigate having players quarantined and to uh, be up in a regional championship, almost win one. But, you know, ultimately fall, but to win a second championship this year was phenomenal. And um, like I said, it, it was fun to wrap that up. And speaking of COVID-19, we have our weekly basketball updates. And you have the numbers. Uh, I know that today's story, uh, we have Chesterton getting back on the court again. Uh, Valpo setting a... Uh, start date and uh, Valpo was starting a little bit later not necessarily because of COVID but also and this is kind of a, an annual thing actually the teams that go deep into the football playoffs you know, usually wind up um, readjusting their basketball schedule so they don't have to have their kids go straight into hoops but uh, those are two of the bigger names I know and you got uh, a few more details on that yeah so Chester had been on hold for um basically um, about two weeks because one of their players tested positive according to their principal and uh, today on uh, Monday the tw- the 30th they were able to resume practice um, at 3 p.m. today which is obviously a, a good sign for their season um, I confirmed with their AD or the assistant AD Tommy Berry that they'll be back in action and starting their season up uh, Saturday against Lowell they're going to uh, face Lowell at home in the season opener and then Valpo, uh, as I was writing this story, Valpo's AD, uh, Stacey Adams, sent me an email saying uh, you know, when they were going to start their season. They're going to start their season on the 11th at Lowell. Um, like you said, they had some turnover for some kids at, at Valpo playing football, like Cooper Jones and Mason Jones. Um, two of their better players do play football. They made it to State football, which is the 20th. Today is the 30th. Um, obviously, they need some time to get acclimated to basketball. And also, you need to have a certain amount of practices in your respective sport as well, which I wasn't even aware of. Um, you know, you have to have um, a certain amount of practices in place in basketball before you can jump off from football into basketball. So, And, and then they were also saying they had some COVID-19 quarantine issues. Um, not a lot from what I was uh, getting from their AD, but enough to basically say, like, hey, Let's just wait until we get everybody back. I'm um, sorry, our season. So they're going to start up on the, on the 11th. 
And then uh, North Newton, they had paused all winter activities um, because of COVID-19 and the cases spiking like crazy in Newton County. They'll actually be back in action today as well, all the winter sports. The girls will be back in action Friday um, for uh, to resume their season for girls basketball. And then boys basketball will be back in action next Saturday. Um, they'll be starting their season off. So a lot of updates on that part. And the last update I had was Marquette girls postponing their game uh, on, I believe, December 2nd. Um, Wednesday, yes. Um, because of contact tracing, which is their second straight game where they had to uh, – not their second straight game, but their second game um, uh, this season where they had to uh, stop a game because of contact tracing. And um, it's just what it is now at this point. I mean, I was even looking at Andran. They missed the game last week, but it was actually because of Twin Lakes' COVID-19 uh, situation. So every day, like I tell you all on the podcast last few weeks, you're just waking up. Um, earlier than I probably normally would and, and checking John Harrell and checking my email and appreciating when, you know, the, the schools are forthcoming, you know, like Valpo and, and Marquette and, and testing about their situations. That way I keep an eye on things. Um, we have a few more schools that are supposed to resume um, sometime this week, which I'll try to provide updates on. I promise I'm not just doom and gloom and I won't just report on when teams are stopped. I'll also try to get to, you know, uh, aware of when schools are starting back up when programs are playing again that's the job i try to be fair in, in all aspects of that but uh yeah that's the new norm so just expect these stories to keep coming basically until we have that soon yes and uh our final item um as uh, noted earlier uh kind of a national story uh well it is a national story uh, so fuller the goalie for the sec champ Vanderbilt women's soccer team kicked off the second half of Vanderbilt's game on Saturday and uh, she was the first woman to appear in a Power 5 football game. Uh, there have been two previous women who played uh, in D1 games and uh, so it's it's an interesting story because of the way it was perceived by different people. You know, and I think that you and I uh, certainly took a look at this and said, wow, what a great story, an inspirational story. Um, you know, Vanderbilt was in a tough spot because they didn't have anybody to kick off uh, or to kick PATs or uh, field goals. Uh, as it turned out, they didn't have any opportunities to kick PATs or field goals. So the kickoff, the kickoff was the only opportunity she had. But um, I think a lot of people thought that this was kind of a cool story. And the reason that I want to bring it up and uh, talk about it a little bit is not everybody does feel that way. Um, you know, uh, the, the Twitter chatter. Um, was kind of divided, um, and I don't know what percentage you know was on one side and what percentage is on the other side. But there were some people who thought it was uh, we called it a publicity stunt and asked Jason Whitlock, who I don't know, you know, we can I don't know how everybody feels about Jason Whitlock, but he actually tweeted, um, "Does Vandy have a men's soccer team? Because they have gotten." A men's soccer player to do it. Well, Vandy doesn't have a men's soccer team and hasn't had one for 14 years. He could have Googled that to find out, but it was 
really more interested in making a point uh, and scoring some points with a different group of people. Um, you know, and the uh, kind of the, the, the backlash, I guess you would say, to this, you know, kind of disappointed me and kind of saddened me a little bit, too, because, you know, I see it as a pretty positive story and, again, an inspirational story. And then some folks were just trying to say, well, why, why is this happening? Didn't they have any other kickers on the roster? Couldn't they have gotten somebody? Basically, the, the point of it was, is couldn't they have gotten a man to do the job? instead of having her do it you know which you know and then they were making fun of the fact that uh, it was a pooch kick too but uh, as it turned out it was a designed pooch kick they didn't want to kick it deep and risk a long run back so I mean she did what she was asked to do after joining the team you know like a few days earlier literally I mean she wasn't on the team a week earlier so things considered I think pretty impressive performance and the Apparently, she's going to stick with the team. And uh, even though the head coach got fired, Derek Mason, the special teams coordinator's coach, said that she's welcome to stick around and she wants to do that. So, um, and you had some comments about this as well. And, uh, you know, again, I think we're pretty much on the same page here, but I will uh, let you, uh, you know, give us your thoughts on that then. Yeah, so the first thing I wanted to say, and you mentioned it uh, briefly there. She was not able to attempt any um, extra points or field goals during that game because they lost 41-0 to to Missouri. And the reason I was annoyed with the comments that were extremely sexist, misogynistic, and just downright stupid um, was because they were criticizing her for a design squib kick, like you said, a design pooch kick. Um, that was successful, it worked. But they weren't criticizing these men, were not criticizing the rest of the team. That team is a pathetic excuse of a team, period. They lost 41 to nothing. They scored as many points as me and you, Mike. We have never played college football. So that infuriated me because I'm like, why are you all slamming her for doing her job if they had a semblance of an offense? She would have had a chance to attempt a field goal or, you know, an extra point. But that's pretty hard to do when the rest of the players on the team aren't good at what they do at all. Um, I, I spoke to Robbie Weinstein, who's a former Times reporter. He's out of Vanderbilt. He covered um, that whole uh, historic moment for, for uh, 24-7 sports. And I told him, I was like, man, like, they better be lucky I wasn't in there, that question room because or the Zoom call. Because I would have sort of asked the coach, hey, what can the other players learn from the way Sarah did her job? Because obviously everybody else is pathetic. Like, that's honestly how I feel about it. And it irritates me because, again, everyone's slamming her. They're like, oh, I couldn't find anybody. She's, a, she's six foot two, first off. Well, she's bigger than most men in America. And all the ones on Twitter, for all that matter. And then number two, I mean, she's an SEC champion in, in, in girls' soccer. She knows what it, I mean, women's soccer. Well, she knows what it takes to win. And obviously those guys don't. So if anybody can learn something or do better or, you know, anybody deserves some type of blame, Look at that coach who just got fired, and look at all those players who are sorry. As simple as that. Like, I, I rarely get as angry as I do about these things, but I, I really, and you know how I feel about women, because in my life personally, I, I feel like I would not be who I am without the women in my life. I've said it time and time again, no disrespect to my dad at all, but the two greatest women in my, in my life are my grandma 
and my and my mom. Like those are my two greatest role models. My dad's right there at third. But I mean to you know degrade her and tell this dumb stuff about what she did um, was just ridiculous to me. She's playing two Division One sports in the SEC, which is um, two more than like 99% of the planet. So uh, you know. There you have it. I, I can get off my soapbox now, but Sarah Fuller, keep doing your thing. Um, if the NCAA ever wants to like actually pay their players and stuff, I would definitely buy a jersey and support her because, like she said, she's an inspiration. And I think that women and girls uh, need to be told and reminded as much as possible they can do anything in this world. I mean, we have a woman who just got elected, um, the first black woman ever as, as vice president of this of this country. So. Kamala Harris. So anything is possible when it comes to, you know, what you want to do as a woman. And I never want people to feel like they, uh, I have the right to talk down to a woman because women, uh, in my opinion, pretty much do everything better than men. Just look at history and, uh, you know, the things that men have done. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, does it for us for this week uh, we appreciate you listening in as always uh, hope everyone had a good holiday and uh, we'll be back next week and uh, we can't promise it'll be on Monday because uh, events sometimes get in the way but uh, we'll definitely be back we are on ever since we made that promise that we're going to be back every week we have been back every week so I don't think I'm going to jinx us uh, <laughs> by saying that um, and we will see you again We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, folks.